This week, a lecture about economists Keynes, Hayek, and Friedman. University of California Santa Barbara economics professor Lanny Epstein teaches a class comparing the work of John Maynard Keynes, Friedrich Hayek, and Milton Friedman. So Hayek was, in many respects, no dogmatic libertarian, and, and, and Mises was in terms of, Mises really thought there's almost no positive role for government. Hayek thought, no, government has to create the framework of institutions for the market, and as well, he thought there was um, a significant role uh, for government to play in, in, those, uh, in, in, in the society and providing services. Professor Epstein also draws on examples from capitalistic and socialist economies and argues that while all three 20th century economists were important, Friedrich Hayek was the most impactful. Well, welcome to Econ uh, 107B, and we're going to continue our discussion today by reviewing the works of Friedrich Hayek, John Maynard Keynes, and Milton Friedman, whom I consider to be the three most influential economists of the 20th century. And of the three, I really consider Hayek to be the most influential. He addressed what I call the knowledge problem, and this seems to me to be perhaps the most important contribution to economics since the time of Adam Smith. And uh, this is what Hayek had to say about knowledge. He said, in economics, there's a problem of the division of knowledge, which is quite analogous to, and at least as important as, the problem of the division of labor put forward by Adam Smith. But while the latter has been one of the main subjects of investigation ever since the beginning of our science, the former has been as completely neglected although it seems to me to be the really central problem of economics as a social science. The problem we pretend to solve is how the spontaneous interaction of a number of people, each only possessing bits of knowledge, bring about a state of affairs that corresponds to equilibrium. How can we determine what economic production should be when knowledge is divided among all of the millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people in the world, how do we accommodate divided knowledge? The answer of socialists at the time, as we've discussed and we'll discuss further today, was, well, government can plan. It can make all those decisions. But even if you could entrust government with that power, how would it know what to produce? That's the crucial problem. How do you utilize divided knowledge in a society? Here's what Hayek also said along these lines. This is from his 1936 essay, Economics and Knowledge. Economics has come nearer than any other social science to an answer to that central question of all social sciences. How can the combination of fragments of knowledge existing in different minds bring about results which, if they were to be brought about deliberately, would require a knowledge on the part of the directing mind which no single person can possess? That's the crucial issue. No one individual has this great knowledge 
that exists in a fragmented form among all the uh, members of humankind that are part of a market order. No one has that knowledge. And that was what Hayek put forward as the great uh, obstacle to socialism, was that government simply couldn't presume that it would have this ability to concentrate knowledge in a planner who would determine how much of different goods and services should be produced. Um, That's not the answer. That's the problem. No one has that knowledge. So how do you create a system in which diverse and fragmented knowledge is utilized? And that's what Hayek's answer was. He says that to show that the spontaneous actions of individuals will, under conditions which we can define, bring about a distribution of resources which can be understood as if it were made according to a single plan, although nobody has planned it, is the goal of economics. So that's precisely what the price, profit, and private property system does. It is it allows fragmented and decentralized knowledge to be utilized. Freely fluctuating prices allow for the registration and the communication of the relative supply and demand of all the goods and services that are being produced in an economy. That's the economic problem. That's what freely uh, floating prices and uh, profits do, is that prices register supply and demand, and profits direct resources to those who, all things considered, tend to utilize them more effectively than others. And then private property is necessary in order to uh, enable the price system and, and the profit system to have any sort of effectiveness. So it's a brilliant argument, and it addressed what had been the primary uh, concern of socialism to that time. The argument of socialism was that only if individuals were altruistic enough that uh, then socialism would be possible. The reason why uh, people argued against socialism was socialism was that, well, people aren't ethical enough to practice concern for others or to have a community of goods. Um, Hayek's argument was that that's not the issue at all. You could be having a community of saints. Everyone could be completely altruistic. But if you don't have a way to register relative supply and demand, then you really won't have rational economic activity. And um, uh, what's fascinating is that when when Hayek put forward these ideas, primarily in the 1930s, um, they weren't immediately persuasive. And we've seen that throughout this quarter, that when ideas are originally enunciated, they're not necessarily greeted with universal assent. But over time, reality proved to be the greatest teacher of all. And as we've discussed, when you uh, considered the uh, efficiency of different economies, of the United States economy versus the Soviet economy, the economy of the Soviet Union, or if you looked even a better example, East Germany versus West Germany, or North Korea versus South Korea, where you have different systems of economic activity, and then you see the results of those systems over years and decades, it quickly became clear that a system of free market capitalism is more productive than a system of government control. And ironically, 
um, as we've, we've discussed earlier in the quarter. The economic productivity and efficiency of socialism in the sense of government control of the economy is exactly what socialists thought was their strongest argument. The socialist system would be more productive than capitalism. But that proved not to be the case. Um, as we'll discuss a little bit later in class, uh, Milton Friedman's work in particular, reconceptualizing the Great Depression and uh, putting forward its monitor- monetary source um, in, in the form of an inadequate policy by the Federal Reserve Board in the 1930s, in the early 1930s, was the primary cause of the Great Depression, not some inevitable failures of capitalism that had to be accommodated by a greatly increased government role in the economy. Um, so it took time, but, um, uh, but Hayek's ideas ultimately prevailed. And as I said, it seems to me that they are the, the fundamental macroeconomic contribution of the 20th century. The issue throughout much of the 20th century was, will the future of economics be a more command economy direction, more government control, or will it be more market, a more market-based system? Um, and for most of the 20th century, until the 1980s, the general view was that the future was going to be more of a socialist system of more government control. Um, but then as a result of the circumstances of the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and then in the Soviet Union uh, and the continuing uh, and continual productivity of a free market system, uh, the paradigm of government control quickly shifted. And um, at this point in time, the perspective that there's an important role for the market in society is as if not more established than the view of earlier decades in the 20th century that the future would be in some sort of, um, uh, some sort of uh, socialist or command economy and direction. Um, what, what I would note, too, is that, uh, as I stressed, yeah, Stone, you want to, yeah. So Hayek did a lot with the socialist calculation question. Um, how much of what he did was built on Mises and Baumbauer's work on the socialist calculation, and how much of it was his own extrapolation? That's a really good question. Um, to what extent was uh, Hayek uh, influenced by his predecessors in, uh, among Austrian economists, in particular Eugene uh, von Baumbauer and, and Ludwig von Mises? And um, as we've indicated, the, the Austrian school of economics was a very important strand of economic uh, theory during the later 1800s and early 1900s, um, together with uh, William Stanley Jevons and Alfred Marshall in England and uh, Leon Walras and uh, Vilfredo Pareto in, uh, in Switzerland. Um, and Karl Menger was originally the, the leading Austrian economist. Um, and I would say that Hayek was very much influenced by his Austrian economic predecessors, um, particularly Mises. Um, Mises is really the one who, after World War I, and all of a sudden the Soviet Union existed in, uh, in Eastern Europe, um, and there had been the collapse of governments throughout uh, Central and Eastern Europe. There were also, uh, for a time, other socialist states that were set up 
uh, in parts and areas of Eastern Europe that didn't last. The Soviet Union was the only uh, regime that, that lasted. And it became a practical question. Um, socialism really only became an issue after the establishment of the Soviet Union in 1917. Before that, it was all theory. There wasn't any socialist country that was attempting to run the means of production. Um, And so Mises asked the question, well, how is it going to work? How are they going to know what to produce? Um, If you don't have the, uh, the, the, the market mechanism, then you don't have a rational economy. Um, So I think that particularly um, that Mises influenced Hayek a great deal. Hayek, however, and that provides a segue to our our next subject, is that Hayek never considered himself to be a pure Misesian. And um, I think that sometimes his thought isn't entirely understood for that reason. Um, Hayek really did think that there was a reasonable place for government and society. And it wasn't a uh, comprehensive place or an all-encompassing place, um, as as socialists believed. And he certainly believed that it would be better if government could be provided at a local level rather than at a national level, um, if there could be private institutions uh, as well as government institutions to address education and health and welfare. But at the same time, he recognized that there is a vital role for government to play both in providing social services and in creating this framework of the market. Um, How do we define property rights? How do we enforce property rights? What institutions are necessary to allow a market to operate effectively? Uh, As we've seen in our discussion of the Great Depression, Um, The absence of federal deposit insurance in the United States led to the collapse of thousands of banks in the early 1930s. Um, Because of the collapse of the banks, the money supply uh, contracted very significantly. There was very significant deflation, a great deal of unemployment. Um, Well, since the 1930s and uh, the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, There's been federal deposit insurance in the United States, so individuals don't have to withdraw their funds from a bank if uh, there's there's some sort of a banking crisis. There isn't that fear of losing losing your money, and uh, therefore we haven't had any sort of significant banking crisis um, since the 1930s, um, such as existed before federal deposit insurance. Well, is federal deposit insurance an interference with the market or does it make the market move, uh, uh, operate more effectively? Um, and Hayek's argument was that uh, government has an essential role to play, both in social services and in uh, establishing the framework for the market. So uh, this is what he had to say. There's nothing in the basic, and this is from his 1944 work, The Road to Serfdom, through which he probably became most well-known. There's nothing in the basic principles of classical liberalism to make it a stationary creed. The fundamental principle that in the ordering of our affairs we should make as much use as possible of the spontaneous forces of society to encourage competition and a free exchange of goods and services and to resort as little as possible to coercion 
his object of opposition was government control of the economy, not of government providing certain welfare services for individuals and government establishing the framework institutions within which this spontaneous action of individuals operates. Um, We want to resort as little as possible to coercion, that that principle is capable of an infinite variety of applications. There's all the difference between deliberately creating a system within which competition will work as beneficially as possible and passively accepting institutions as they are. Probably nothing has done so much harm to the liberal cause as the wooden insistence on certain rough rules of thumb, above all, the principle of laissez-faire. So Hayek was, in many respects, no dogmatic libertarian, and, and, and Mises was in terms of, Mises really thought there was almost no positive role for government. Hayek thought, no, government has to create the framework of institutions for the market, and as well, he thought there was um, a significant role uh, for government to play in, in, those, uh, in, in, in the society and providing services. Um, so he, uh, he provided a description of socialism And I think it's important to understand what Hayek meant by socialism because he had a very particular meaning. Today, we tend to think of a socialist as someone like Bernie Sanders. They want to see a lot of government. Um, That really wasn't Hayek's definition of government. He was against a lot of government. That's not the point. But he didn't think it was the same thing as socialism. What he meant by socialism was the type of economic system that existed in the Soviet Union, where government ran the whole economy and made all of the economic decisions, as we discussed in our, uh, uh, in, our, in, our, in our class on Marx, that Marx really felt that government could do just about everything in the society. And um, uh, in the economy, government owned all the land, it made all the investment decisions, it employed most of the people in the society, and there was a very limited uh, role for a private system. Uh, that wasn't Hayek's view. Yeah, we've got a couple questions down here, so we probably want the boom to come down again. So, Eric, do you want to uh, ask the first question? Sure. Um, so you're talking about sort of the nuance uh, that of, of Hayek's work and his uh, opinion. Um, today, this is sort of seen, like this work is seen as like sort of the foundation of the, uh, or like the basis of, of capitalism and why it's an efficient system. Um, do you feel like um, his more nuanced positions about, um, about like the limitations of what the market can do? So for instance, like um, prices transmit uh, knowledge throughout a society, but it doesn't transmit it all equally. So um, it may transmit uh, the market for phones or something equally, but when it comes down to necessity goods, say like food or housing, it doesn't appropriately transmit those. My personal need for housing, um, it, like, does not, uh, it cannot be ex- described by my income. If I'm very low income, I can't translate that information to how badly I need that to the market. So in your opinion, um, do you feel like um, a lot of uh, the more nuanced parts of his, uh, of his work 
have been lost and sort of um, been co-opted for uh, to the uh, purposes of, say, libertarianism or um, free market capitalism? I do. I think that's a good question, is that has Hayek's message largely or in significant part, perhaps better, um, not been fully understood? And I, and I agree with that in terms of he, he did have a much more nuanced perspective and he would not be what's today considered to be a hardcore libertarian. Although, again, at the time when it looked like the whole world was moving towards socialism in the sense of government control of most of the economy, um, that nuance wasn't quite as uh, wasn't wasn't quite as adequately appreciated as it should have been, and I felt that a good article would be something like um, or a title for a book would be completing the Hayekian revolution, and then trying to uh, talk about his ideas in the area of um, uh, in the area of government more generally, distinct from his views against. Uh, against socialism. And again, his definition of socialism is very clear in Road to Serfdom, and it's rather limited. Socialism means the abolition of private enterprise, of private ownership of the means of production, and the creation of a planned economy in which the entrepreneur working for profit is replaced by a central planning body. Um, so Hayek's view really was that that's what he meant by socialism. That's what he was against. And that message has to some extent, I think, uh, been uh, forgotten or lost. So I, I think it's really important that we return to the original Hayek and um, consider his whole view. And as I said, to me, this is also very consistent with the view of Adam Smith. Adam Smith is primarily his greatest concern was he didn't he was against mercantilism he didn't think government should run the economy um, he, he, he again he thought government should be smaller rather than larger he thought there should be a large private sector including in the provision of social services but he wasn't there's no place for government that's also similar to Hayek's view that's different than contemporary libertarians and I think that the, the Hayek Smith position is in many senses much stronger than the contemporary libertarian position. Eli, yeah, do you have a comment, question? Yeah. Uh, so you talked about Hayek and his aversion, aversion to big government, but I was wondering, um, there's specific instances where you said uh, social services, he would permit so, uh, social services. So I was wondering, is there any specific examples he gives where he feels that uh, it's appropriate for the government to step in? Sure, that's a really good question. And in fact, again, that, that's a good segue to what I was next going to uh, suggest is that, again, in Road to Serfdom, Hayek gives a really good description of the sort of um, uh, government activities that he thinks are appropriate. He says, to prohibit the use of certain poisonous substances, to require special precautions in their use, to limit the working hours or to require certain sanitary arrangements is fully compatible with the preservation of competition, nor is the preservation of competition incompatible with an extensive system of social services. So he's not arguing against there's going to be poor people in a society. There are going to be people who need the help of the community. That's the nature of the universe. 
You can't wish those people away or you can't assume that they don't exist. People often, even if um, they are um, uh, able most of the time to take care of themselves in the market economy, they may be ill. They may be going through a personal family circumstance. There's many situations that lead people to require the assistance of the community, and it's to the advantage of the community that those services are provided. People are then more productive. Education is a good example. Is education an interference with liberty? Well, I suppose on some libertarian grounds, you might be able to make that argument, but it seems as though societies that have strong educational systems also have stronger economies. That's something that almost every government in the world has invested in for the past 200 years. Does public education equal socialism? Hayek's argument was no, it doesn't equal socialism. Maybe public education can be done more effectively or less effectively, but that doesn't mean that of itself it's necessarily incompatible with a free market. And again, Hayek notes that government is required to make the free market more uh, effective. He says, the functioning of competition not only requires uh, adequate organization of certain institutions like money, markets, and channels of information, but it depends above all on the existence of an appropriate legal system. Um, So Hayek's view is that government is required both to create the market and to provide uh, certain social services. And he quotes Adam Smith, in fact, on this very point. He says, to create conditions in which competition will be as effective as possible, to supplement it where it cannot be made effective, to provide the services which, in the words of Adam Smith, though they may be in the highest degree advantageous to a great society, are, are, however, of such a nature that the profit could never repay the expense to any individual or small number of individuals. These tasks provide indeed a wide and unquestioned field for state activity. In no system that could be rationally defended would the state just do nothing. Um, so those are, those are Hayek's views, and as I said, I think they're, they're somewhat different than they're often considered to be. Um, I want to shift next and, and talk about uh, John Maynard Keynes. And uh, Keynes was truly a, uh, a great individual in terms of his personality was uh, a great deal of the source of his success. And uh, Hayek and Keynes were contemporaries. Um, uh, they both lived in England uh, from 1931 when Hayek uh, moved to the London School of Economics from Vienna. Um, until Keynes' death in 1946. Um, Keynes taught at Cambridge, which is only 60 miles from London, and the economists from London and at the London School of Economics where Hayek taught, and at Cambridge where Keynes was. They would regularly see each other at conferences and seminars. They they read the same economics journals and participated in the same activities. Um, And then during World War II, as a result of the bombing of London, the London School of Economics was moved to Cambridge for the war years. So Hayek relocated um, to, uh, to Cambridge in 1940, and uh, he then lived uh, in Cambridge near Keynes uh, during World War II and came to know him quite well. And they, so although they disagreed in economics, they were, they were friends. And uh, Hayek provided a great description of Keynes that, that I thought would be of interest. Um, he says that, 
whatever one may think of Keynes as an economist, nobody who knew him will deny that he was one of the outstanding Englishmen of his genera- generation. Indeed, the magnitude of his influence as an economist is due much to the impressiveness of the man, the universality of his interests, and the power and persuasive charm of his personality. Um, so Keynes's personality meant a lot. And after he died, uh, Hayek wrote uh, a note uh, to Keynes's widow, and he commented that Keynes was the greatest man he'd ever known. Um, and to some extent, you have to say that's uh, comments like that are occasioned by the circumstance in which they're expressed. Um, but there's no question that um, Hayek thought very highly of Keynes as a person and uh, was bewitched by him, as many were. Um, and um, what, what I've tried to argue is that Keynes's basic theory um, was a, a theory of insufficient demand. That, that's really what he thought the problem was with capitalism. And when he surveyed uh, the circumstances of the Great Depression and uh, the economic downturn that was occurring, what, what he thought was that, well, uh, his analysis, there's insufficient demand. And if we can get demand going again, then, then the economy will, um, uh, will, will function uh, appropriately again. That's why when later in the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s, different non-Keynesian theories were put forward. They were put forward as supply-side theories. Keynes emphasized demand. You had to, have, uh, had to have adequate demand in order for an economy to operate correctly. Well, then later, individuals emphasized supply. You have to have necessary supply. If you have necessary supply, that's what will then will meet demand. Um, I guess from my perspective, supply and demand are something like the blades of a scissors. You have to have both. So, I, as I said, I think that over-focus on one to the uh, exclusion of the other um, is, uh, is an inaccurate way of uh, looking at either supply and demand and their, their function in the economic process. But, as I say, it certainly was uh, Keynes's idea that the essential problem in the, uh, in the uh, Great Depression was that um, there wasn't sufficient demand. Yeah, question. Keynes is all about controlling demand and supply in the economy, but I do believe that it's way easier to control the demand because you just need to shift the interest rate down and everyone just like going crazy. And when you shift the demand, the interest rate up, everyone's just like coming down. But that's not the case for supply because it takes a really long time. Um, we need to give um, the enterprise a lot of incentive for them to move the supply side. Um, so did Kane think about that? I think that's a really good point in terms of demand, at least in the short run, is uh, easier to influence than uh, supply. So I, I, I think my argument might be that um, demand is more of a short-term phenomenon and supply is more of a long-term phenomenon. And again, and, and ultimately, it does seem to me that you want to create the maximum supply possible in terms of that's the economic goal. How do you maximize production? If you don't have, if you don't have production to start with, doesn't matter how it's distributed in terms of, so, so it has to exist. So no, I think those are good comments. And I, I don't think that 
either a focus on, on one or the other is the best approach. And I think that um, both Keynes and, and later uh, supply-siders can be faulted for um, sort of not appreciating other aspects of the larger economic question. Lizette. Um, a little bit of a question and somewhat of a comment, because he mentioned that demand was easier, I guess, to move. But what Keynes, I believe, is speaking on is this deflationary cycle where it's like, why would I spend money today when things are just going to be cheaper tomorrow? And that deflationary cycle, I know we talk a lot about inflation and how like, oh my gosh, inflation is hyperinflation, but we don't ever really necessarily talk about deflation and how hard it is to combat this deflationary cycle. So my question to you is how do you combat deflationary cycle? How do you incentivize people to spend money today when everyone is thinking that everything is going to be cheaper tomorrow? Because I think that was the biggest issue, which is why it was so, like exactly what he's speaking on, inefficient demand. No one's going to be spending their money if everything's going to be cheaper next week. Good, good argument in terms of in the circumstances of the Great Depression, where at times there was double-digit deflation and the monetary system and banking system have seized up and are inoperable, why are people going to spend? Why are people going to invest? Um, and uh, so I think that in those sorts of circumstances, the issue isn't encouraging long-term uh, saving in the economy or investment, capital investment. It's how do you get economic activity going again? And it seems to me that Keynes's solution of government spending, um, although, again, he was in favor of government spending in the form of deficits. That was really his economic argument, was that government had to um, borrow excess funds in the capital markets, which, uh, from the perspective of Friedman, which I agree with, didn't exist. That wasn't the problem. But in terms of the solution that Keynes put forward during the Great Depression of government spending, it seems to me that that was the appropriate um, method. Again, maybe it could have been handled more through the private sector, through giving people tax cuts rather than um, through government uh, spending of programs. But at the same time, in, a, in, a, in an economic crisis, it seems to me that there's going to be experimentation. COVID more recently is a good example for reasons that no one foresaw. All of a sudden, economic uh, activity plummets and unemployment is as high as 20 percent. You just got to get money to people. I, I, I think that in, in a lot of ways, the, the response to COVID was in some respect, respects better than the response to the Great Depression because it really was just giving money to individuals and private businesses in largest part, and that seemed to maintain a certain amount of economic activity. I, th I think the problem, and it's really ironic, is, is that Keynes's solution of government deficit spending um, is a solution that worked in the Great Depression because of deflation. But he called his great work the general theory of employment interest in money, as if this were the solution in, in most economic circumstances. And it really wasn't. It was the solution in the Great Depression after it got going. Um, but it wasn't a general theory. It was a specific theory. Um, so I think that um, uh, that was... Um, as I said, I, I heartily disagree with Keynes's technical uh, discussion of 
the cause of the Great Depression, finding it to be an excess saving. Once the Great Depression got going, that there had to be some government intervention does, though, seem to me to be inevitable. And I think that was Keynes's great contribution to economics, was that um, whether you agree with his policies or not, he basically thought that there was a significant role for government to play, like Hayek. Keynes was no socialist. He didn't think government should micromanage individual decision-making and set prices and, and, um, uh, and, and try to uh, determine what production should be in different industries. He, he thought that really only the, the market could do that. But he did think that a, quote-unquote, pure, free, unfettered, free market um, wasn't necessarily the most productive and that the way for government to intervene effectively was for government to have uh, appropriate monetary and fiscal policies that would continue to allow the private sector to operate at full employment. Um, and whether one agrees with Keynes's particular monetary and fiscal policies or not, um, I do think that, um, that the thought that government has that role to play with respect to uh, monetary and fiscal policies is a contribution that remains and endures to this day, again, whether or not you agree with the specific remedies that Keynes put forward. And in many respects, it, it's not so dissimilar from Hayek's view. Keynes probably would have emphasized government spending more, greater government role in the society, but he was no socialist as Hayek was no socialist. Um, and on the other hand, it seems to me that, that Keynes does emphasize more than Hayek. Hayek is more an anti-socialist, it seems to me, whereas Keynes is more, how do you make capitalism work? And his answer is through appropriate macroeconomic, fiscal, and monetary policies. Um, well, that brings us to Milton Friedman, the, the third, as I would say, most influential economist during the 20th century. And as I've said before, I had the great benefit of knowing Friedman a little bit through uh, writing on both uh, Hayek and Friedman. And um, he was a wonderful human being and a great teacher, extraordinarily warm personality. Um, I remember one brilliant mind. I, I remember one occasion I was interviewing him at uh, Stanford, and uh, I had gone there to do some research in his archive, and he happened to be there that day. I, and I had heard that, and I went up and, and chatted with him for a while. And um, our conversation just incidentally moved toward uh, some topic that I had recently researched. And uh, he made some statement that I thought was inaccurate based on incidental reading he had done 50 years before. And uh, when I got home, I discovered he was right, and I'd remembered it wrong. So something that you know, I was less than half his age that I had read in the recent past and had been intently focused on, I had, I had remembered incorrectly and something that Friedman had just uh, remembered, uh, had just read briefly decades before, he, he remembered the detail correctly. So, as I said, he had a brilliant mind. And, uh, and I, I've mentioned his great uh, sense of humor as, as well as, he, he was really concerned about other people, and that's why he was involved in economics, was he went into economics originally. He was an undergraduate during the Great Depression, and um, he thought that, well, if he could understand how economics works and then somehow impart that information to others, that then the world will be a little bit better place than, than through an alternative career. And um, so he really was motivated by 
uh, a utilitarian standard of the greatest good or the greatest happiness um, for the, the greatest number. And uh, I've emphasized uh, Friedman's views in methodology and um, his idea that uh, for economics to be a science, that it has to make predictions. And uh, I, I want to read that again. Um, because it goes to the idea that we've emphasized in this course that economics can be a science, that we can come to agreement on what the causes of, uh, of, of different circumstances are and what actions will bring about different circumstances. And if we had that scientific understanding, then we'd have much greater in e- agreement in economics. So... Um, uh, it's not a, economics isn't uh, a normative or ethical or moral discipline. It's a scientific discipline, or it can be a scientific discipline. And what Friedman calls positive economics is what I refer to as scientific economics. This is what Friedman says. Positive economics is in principle independent of any ethical position or normative judgment. It deals with what is, not with what ought to be. Its task is to provide a system of generalizations that can be used to make correct predictions about the consequences of any change in circumstances. Its performance is to be judged by the precision, scope, and conformity with experience of the predictions it yields. In short, positive economics is or can be an objective science in precisely the same sense as any of the physical sciences. Well, that's a wonderful goal, that we can get to the point where there's agreement on economic issues, and there isn't this uh, fighting and rivalry and emotionality as to uh, different economic uh, issues. People might continue to disagree. They undoubtedly would on what's the best economic outcome. But at least Friedman's view is that there's much greater agreement on outcomes than there is on the methods to get there. Um, To be sure, there's also differences on on, on outcomes. But in general, people want to see more economic growth rather than less. They would like everybody in an economy to do well. They'd prefer to see less inflation rather than more inflation. Um, There's many factors that... Um, people would agree on as, a, as an appropriate goal of economics. But the economists all disagree in terms of how do we achieve greater economic growth? How do we achieve less inflation? Um, how do we achieve a higher standard of living for all? And it seems to me that that's really the fundamental economic question. And how do we, how do we achieve these goals in economics? Um, And I think that was Friedman's real accomplishment, is not just with respect to his specific monetary theory, his reinterpretation of the Great Depression and pointing out that it was inappropriate Federal Reserve policy, in particular in raising interest rates during the Great Depression that led to the collapse of banks, which then led to the collapse of the money supply, which then led to the collapse of the economy and unemployment. that's a great intellectual contribution and helped to reframe consideration of a free market economy. It wasn't that capitalism had failed during the Great Depression. It was that 
the Federal Reserve Board had failed during the Great Depression. Well, that's an entirely different argument. And by having that intellectual understanding, then we're in a position to, uh, we're in a position to uh, adopt better economic policies in the future than the past. Um, and I think that um, uh, Friedman's contributions, as I've mentioned, as an economist, as an academic economist, were really significant. Um, not just his monetary reinterpretation of the uh, uh, Great Depression and his focus on monetary policy rather than fiscal policy. Um, Friedman was really the one in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s who said that emphasis on fiscal policy, and, and in particular on deficits, that, that that isn't the key to economic growth. Um, rather, the key to economic growth is monetary policy. That, that's just purely become the new conventional wisdom. And people really don't, other than in extreme conditions, talk, talk much about the deficit other than that they're against it in some general way. But in, in most circumstances, individuals don't use deficit spending as a way to influence the economy. Rather, it's uh, the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy, which is uh, mostly used to um, influence the uh, influence uh, influence economic activity. So his his ideas there have been uh, very uh, effective and um, have have really uh, triumphed as a uh, means of uh, moderating economic uh, economic activity. But at the same time, it seems to me that it is his his idea of prediction and the idea that we can come to a science of economics that is most important. And I would again note that his work in economic theory is very different than his work as a public intellectual. As an, as an academic economist, he uh, did great statistical research. He researched uh, different fields for years. We've also talked about his work in the area of flexible international exchange rates. The entire economics profession was on one side. He thought that flexible international exchange rates would be a better economic policy. That's also a sort of international monetary policy that's proven very effective. Um, but as I say, I think it's his philosophical approach um, on, uh, on a positive economics, which is really in some ways the most important. And I'll uh, close uh, today with um, a, uh, uh, a comment that he uses to uh, conclude that essay on the methodology of positive economics, where he talks about how do we create new economic theory. He says, progress in positive economics, in scientific economics, will require not only the testing and elaboration of existing hypotheses, but also the construction of new hypotheses. On this problem, there is little to say on a formal level. The construction of hypotheses is a creative act of inspiration, intuition, invention. Its essence is the vision of something new and familiar material. The process must be discussed in psychological, not logical categories, studied in autobiographies and biographies, not treatises on scientific method, and promoted by maxim and example not syllogism or theorem. Um, so that's a very humanistic perspective. Um, I think all of these economists that we've considered, Hayek, Keynes, and Friedman, they were primarily empirical economists. That's what was important about them. They put forward views of the world. 
Hayek with respect to uh, the division of knowledge, uh, uh, Keynes with respect to the importance of government, macroeconomic, monetary, and particularly fiscal policies, and Friedman's reinterpretation of economic policy with his focus on monetary policy and also, uh, and also on the importance of prediction and methodology. So with those thoughts, we're going to return on Friday to our uh, consideration of current economic issues, and in particular the issue of inequality, which really none of uh, Hayek and uh, Keynes and Friedman considered in depth, although Friedman uh, to some extent uh, discussed it somewhat more than the other two, and I think is a new issue in economic theory that has emerged in recent decades. And uh, we'll continue our discussion on Friday. See you then. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in more history? Check out the second season of C-SPAN's Presidential Recordings podcast. Go behind the scenes with privately recorded phone calls between President Richard Nixon and members of Congress, members of his administration, and even members of his own family. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.